This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Brian Swim, a CIIS professor and author, asks why we study the universe. His talk explores how we build our civilizations upon our understanding of the cosmos and how that understanding is constantly changing. The lecture was recorded on April 20, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Commercial break. I teach here in CIS, but at a fabulous program called the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness Program. And the reason I'm, I'm taking a moment is because we are, at the present time, expanding. We're now, after years and years and years of um, being hounded by people, we have caved in and we're going to put together an online program. So those of you that are from out of town or whatever else, or those of you that are in town and don't like to be with other people, this online program <laughs> could be just just what you want. It's just, um, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic program. I, <clears throat> I feel embarrassed talking about something I'm part of, but I really mean it. The uh, history of philosophy, let's do this quickly. So um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm looking from the point of view of cosmology. Cosmology is like a branch of philosophy. And uh, the story for the Western world uh, begins in the Middle East and Northern Africa, so in the Middle East, they started to observe the, the stars. I mean, when did we start to observe the stars? Well, certainly in the Middle East, like five, 6,000 years ago. But maybe humans were looking at the stars for 200,000 years. How long were humans looking at the stars? We didn't know exactly. There are certain indications that, that if you go way back in time, humans were looking at the stars. Do the chimpanzees look at the stars? Do our ancestors look at the stars? Well, it's... There, there's the guesses, some birds navigate by the stars. So it's been going on for a long time. And then we get to the, to, to the Northern Africa and the Middle East, and they have all of these amazing uh, data banks of where the, where the stars are. Then we go to the Greeks. The Greeks, they weren't as interested in the observations because they'd already been done. They're all there, but they did something different. They, instead of observing the stars, which we can call thinking the stars. They were thinking about thinking. We might call this thinkling. It's another order of thinking. And so the, the, the thinkling was, um, resulted in systems and theories and sets of axioms that tried to systematize all that we'd learned. We'd learned so much. How did it fit together? And the, the greatest uh, philosopher that in this endeavor was Aristotle in the classical world. So Aristotle brought together the received knowledge of, of the known world at that time. And he, so he arrived at, uh, so his, his vision of the universe was, was that we have, um, the earth is here, and we, we observe the stars going around us, the moon is going around us, the sun is going around us, they're all going around us, and if you, if you move all the way out past the stars, you get to the prima mobile, 
Now, I don't know if Aristotle actually used that word, but, but medieval thinkers picked up that idea, the prima mobile, and this was the idea that beyond the stars was a sphere that was moving the fastest of all. And this was the realm of, of God. And so for, for Aristotle, this was the unmoved mover. Terrible name, you know, unmoved mover. It's just like, he gives it out, but he doesn't receive. You know, he just gives it out, doesn't receive. So, but it's, that was a system. That was a system of the cosmology in the classical times. And then we move into literature. And so we move to Dante. And what Dante does is breathe fire into the Aristotelian cosmology. It isn't enough for Dante just to, to say these, I say it's spheres, but the idea was that, that around the earth were these, these crystalline spheres that were spinning. And so that one of them contained the moon, one of them contained the sun, one of them contained the stars, and so forth. And so the... Um, for Dante, it wasn't enough just to have this, this ordered cosmos. He was interested in something else. He wanted to know not just how the stars moved. He wanted to know why Beatrice moved him so much. That was the switch. It wasn't enough to know how the heavens go. It, he wanted to know why he went for Beatrice. And so this was the move... This is a move from abstract theory, abstract philosophical theory, to a person, <clears throat> to a person, and as apprehended by Dante, to an image. So it's the image of Beatrice. He wanted to understand why this was cataclysmic in his own psyche. And so he... He and, and others, I mean, he, he, drew, he drew upon the Muslim world, definitely, and he drew upon the Greek world, Neoplatonic world. He drew upon a number of sources, but, but his, his great line was that love is that which moves the sun and the other stars, and it's the love in his heart that is moving the sun and the other stars. So, you see, for Dante, his love was cosmic, it was cosmological, and human, and terrestrial. It was many layers. <laughs> then what, what took place was the, the destruction of all of this. That's a pretty interesting consciousness Dante had going. Pretty interesting, all right? Totally demolished by Copernicus, by Kepler, by Newton. And uh, just to review all of their theories, the, um, so the, the, you know, the, big, the big thing was, was, was Copernicus offered this hypothesis of the earth going around the sun, which actually is counterintuitive. You know, it sort of blows your mind, it's counterintuitive. And yet the, the empirical evidence kept growing, the theoretical uh, coherence kept growing, and so Europe and then, then the world um, deconstructed the, the brilliant synthesis of Dante, and um, in a certain sense, there was a collapse. There was a collapse down to the universe as, ma as machine. It's just doing its thing, like whatever. It's mechanical. And, and the human world collapsed down into psychology, 
This is this also was brought out by uh, Carolyn uh, Cook last week in that the uh, the novel the novel became uh, just centered on human subtleties and psychologies and the relationships and like oh god here it comes again the same old story you know like ah novel after novel after novel <clears throat> and so we you know we find ourselves in that in in that particular state really we're still living that out the modernist consciousness where what what, what is real what matters it's what's taking place in the human world, in the human world, because humans have consciousness. <clears throat> hey, there is a shift taking place. I mean, we're actually, we're actually coming to grips with the, the, the false assumption there that only con- conscious is only in humans. Who do we blame? Uh, we blame Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. It just depends on whether or not you want to be against the French or the Germans. <laughs> but, you know, the, um, both of them were just clueless when it came to animals. Just clueless. You know, I, I know I'm going overboard, and if you have an, a PhD in philosophy, you might want me to, to stand up for Kant on this point and that point and that. You know, why? Right? <laughs> He's had 300 years or whatever to convince us of these things. No, no. They, they simply did not understand that consciousness exists in other places than the human mind and brain. So <clears throat> uh, when I say there's a shift taking place, I mean, obviously, it, at CIS, I mean, and we think consciousness lives in, you know, rocks, so it's not hard here. But, um, <clears throat> but at Cambridge University, a gathering of neuroscientists, neuroscientists, neuroanatomists, neurophysiologists, brain scientists, they made a statement. This is the year 2012. 2012. They just, they said, the, the, the brains of all mammals, all birds, even octopuses, they support, they have the substrate for consciousness. It's like a signal thrown out in the world. And, and two days ago in the New York Times, the scientists at Macquarie University are saying, bees are conscious. Honeybees are conscious. And I love that and one of the guys said, yeah, well, but there's no ethical implications there. You know. <laughs> well, why not? We have these bees all locked up in these little prisons. We roar them around like they're our little slaves. Like there's, there's no reciprocity, you see. And, okay, so we're, we're in a moment of, um, of a transition and the, the birth of modern science in a certain sense is um, the, human, the human venture starting over in the West. There are two mysteries that need to be addressed by any new intellectual, spiritual endeavor. The first is, why is there a reality? And that's puzzling. Why is there a reality? That's the first mystery. Here's the second mystery. Why does reality change? And you answer those two, your life is set. <clears throat> we don't really answer them, but we arrive at perspectives that we find convincing. And so we, we, we've built this up. I say we, no, I mean modern, Western, industrial peoples increasingly drawing upon the discoveries all around the planet. We have built up a, a new understanding <clears throat> of, of why, these, why these things um, 
happen. And they, here's a simple way of saying it. This universe from the beginning is interested in two things. It's interested in expanding and it's interested in contracting. <laughs> okay, that was my best line of the night, okay? <laughs> that was my best line of the night. See, I told you, I, you know, if I had somehow worked George Bush in there, it would have been funny. But, um, no, but it, it, in a real sense, you see, the universe from the beginning, it, it's exploding. We know now, 14 billion years ago, the universe explodes into existence. And not well known, but an interesting fact, the explosion is so great at the beginning that it's faster than the speed of light. You know, you know Einstein's theory, and you can't go faster than the speed of light. Well, at the beginning of the universe, you could, because it wasn't taking place within a fixed frame of reference. So it is like one unbelievably intense explosion. But even as that's happening, the universe is contracting. So the universe isn't just expanding so that it expands out a little bit and then it contracts so that the quarks can form the protons. It, it expands further and then the, the protons and the neutrons contract to form the nuclei. And then, and then the, the expansion continues and then clouds of, of um, atoms appear and begin to contract. So these things are happening simultaneously. And then the expansion continues, and some of these clouds collapse into galaxies. So, so these, these two fundamental dynamics in the universe, the, the first one, the most, the most common name for it is uh, the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, it's just the central uh, scientific insight <clears throat> coming from the 19th century and, and unaltered. And the second one is... Uh, is actually don't have a good name for it because it, it, it hasn't been studied as carefully as the second law. So the second one would go under the titles of uh, complexity science or chaos dynamics or nonlinear dynamics. But my favorite phrase is form generation. So the universe has the second law, which is, is about, about the breakdown of things because they're expanding so rapidly and then it has form generation the building up of things as they <clears throat> as these these possibilities come online so the universe is is not simply going back and forth between expansion and contraction that that is this is a this is the marvelous thing. The universe expands and contracts in order to give birth to a, a new order of complexity that hasn't yet appeared. That is, that's the difference. So we, we um, I, I just find this, I know, like infinitely amazing. It, it's counterintuitive. Once again, it's counterintuitive. It isn't the way in which we would build something. If we were given a, a job to, you know, build a, a, a building, and we start off with the foundation, we get that in place, then we'd put up the walls, and we'd put it all together, and there it is, you know? But the universe, it builds stuff, then it rips it apart. Then it builds new stuff, then it rips that apart. But every time it rips things apart, 
there is a remnant that has a new creative power and it moves forward. So it is, it's not simply going back and forth, it's, it's going back and forth and at the same time, it's advancing forward. So again, the, um, just to give you one more example of this to hold in your mind, because it's, it's my favorite, so you have to hear it. The, um, so the universe expands out and you have all of these, uh, all of these hydrogen helium atoms just dwelling there in space. And then they contract into what becomes a star. So they, their contraction gives birth to something that's new, hadn't been around before. Then the, the star itself, it's contracting the elements within it so that the, the hydrogen is being forced together to form helium. And the helium contracts into, into the form of carbon. And then, all right, wonderful. It creates helium and carbon. That's fantastic. And, and nitrogen and phosphorus. But instead of just, just dwelling on that victory, then it explodes in all directions. And you have these elements dispersed throughout the universe. And that is the creative remnant from a star. So it is, and the word I, the word I wanted to use now, so I'm, now I'm, talking, I'm trying to get at what the universe does, all right? I've been talking about it in terms of, of creativity in advance. It's all about the encounter. The universe is organizing things to bring about interesting and powerful encounters. They're encounters that are simultaneously destructive and creative. In the encounter, the, the participants in the encounter are often destroyed for good. But sometimes the encounter destroys the participants in a way and enables them to emerge in a new form. And that's, in other words, the star then captures that. Now let's look at our own experience, humans. To be a human, uh, I, I could say to be a mammal, right? I could say to be an animal. Uh, like even an insect, according to the scientists at Macquarie University down in Australia. But I just, let's just start with humans and, and see if we can... To be a human is to be filled with longing. To be a human is to be filled with passion. Now, if I am... Um, up until um, 2012, when the Cambridge scientists said it was okay, uh, if I used the word passion in talking about an animal, they would say I was projecting my passion into the animal. But now we're, now we're no, 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 no. The, the universe has constructed us to have seemingly fathomless passions. And this is, this is also one of the most amazing, I think, discoveries in evolutionary biology that, uh, that the process of natural selection and genetic mutation insists upon a, an animal body that is, that is easily excitable, that is, it is quickly aroused. And why, why would this be? 
Uh, the, the thinking goes like this. In the, if you had, um, go back, the primates began 70 million years ago, so we feel kind of close to them. So let's go back uh, 65 million years ago, and we have two groups of primates. And we have um, uh, group A, uh, they're, they're extremely timid about sexual relationship. They, um, they have a long ritual they go through. It lasts for years. And um, even at the end of it, uh, they're not too certain they want to kind of take that risk, all right? Then we go to primate group B, all right? Um, one wink, all right? And they are coupling. So and at the end of the year, we've got a lot of new primates, all right? At the end of the year over here, nothing new. They're still thinking about it. Maybe it'll happen, maybe not. Now, over time, this group here is going to predominate, right? 40 generations in the future, none of them are left. None of them are left. If you're lukewarm, the universe doesn't want you around. It's that simple. Now, it sounds kind of harsh. I mean, uh, I like gentle people. I, I try to be gentle myself. But that, the universe is not really that interested in, in, in complete, gentle, sensitive uh, primate sex. It is so, generation after generation, the urge to merge deepens. Generation after generation. So that we have, now we're at, this is 70 million years later. This is why now, it's just, it's like you can go from calm to deeply interested and really feeling the longing. Why? This isn't something that we do. Do you understand? This is something that has been worked into the nature of our bodies over millions and billions of years. So the, uh, here's a good example. If you take a, um, if you, so the ethologists were looking at the, the sexual response um, in birds, and they were looking at turkeys, and so they, they took the male turkey, and they, um, they showed it a, a, an image of a female turkey, and it was aroused. And so then they, um, they, they made a, that was an actual female turkey, then they made it into, it was a, uh, like a plastic, a plastic model of a female turkey. Male turkey was aroused. So then they, they started taking parts of the, the plastic turkey down, and they got down to um, just the head, all right? And they found out if they just nod the head slightly, male turkey's aroused. <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, I, I, I found this um, as a way of saying something about the, what the universe is, is desiring. The universe is, uh, has, has, has collapsed down to create order. And, and within our own phylum, the vertebrate phylum, Within our own phylum, the universe has, has worked for billions of years in order to create erotic beings to the core of who we are. It's in the very, it's in the very DNA of our, of our bodies. I, I, I was given this, um, these, talking about these various ideas at a workshop, and um, a gentleman there uh, wrote a kind of prose poem that I wanted to read to you. Um, he had found out 
that he had uh, prostate cancer. It was advanced. He knew he wasn't going to live long. And he, he was thinking of his um, ex-wife. They hadn't been in touch. And so I, he's, I said, can I read that in the future? He said, yes, so long as you don't use my name. <clears throat> so here we go. One kiss. The universe rests on a kiss. A wished-for kiss. A kiss that will now never happen. The world rests on that never-to-happen kiss. A slight change, and the leopard is a Bengal tiger. We made love. It was late. When she started to come, I realized the limits of my imagination because I could not imagine a happiness more splendid than this. I could not imagine that Jesus worshipped his Father in heaven more than I now worshipped her. No, that was not possible. I nor could I imagine Buddha was happier under his Bodhi tree. I hope they were half as happy as I was. So it might sound somewhat sacrilegious, that comparison, but it is what, what, he, what, he was, what he was feeling, and I'm trying to convey to you, what he was feeling was an accomplishment of the universe itself. He was bringing into he was bringing into reality something that had been in the works for billions of years, and the the feeling he the feeling he was having was that the universe itself was awakening as him through the encounter. It was through the encounter with his with his ex-wife, in a certain sense, which had reached a kind of um, maybe intellectual orgasmic fulfillment years later when he came to this realization. And he said, he said to me personally, not in the poem, he said, the thrill within the thrill was to realize that I was a participant in a billion-year process that brought forth this joy in another. Virtually all scientists begin with a kind of attraction that they don't fully understand. And what I'm trying to emphasize is, is it's not one way. It's not one way. The, the universe is not a collection of beautiful objects that interest us. The universe is enticing us. It's going out of its way to woo us. It is... It is it's got a lot of intelligence for, for bringing itself forth as us, along those lines. I guess what, what I'm also suggesting at one level is that if you gave porcupines self-reflexive consciousness and the development of symbolic languages, they would have destroyed the ecosystems just exactly the same way as we have. There, there would be porcupines up to here, you know, all over the planet, it, it, we have developed the power to overcome the Darwinian selection 
precisely because of symbolic language. And in, in a certain sense, that, that, that clearly is our, our path. We have to learn to deal with it. But I'm trying to also suggest that the destruction of the planet is being caused primarily by the planet. Destruction in the universe, the major destruction that takes place in the universe is caused primarily by the universe. And secondarily by confused humans. It is, it is, it's an embrace of, of the universe as a source of action. And then you ask, and then the question is this, not, not we've got to stop the destruction. No, no, not at all. It's this. How do we participate in the destruction so that creativity will flourish? There are lots of things that need to be destroyed. Lots and lots of things. We want to be involved with that. You know, the, we can bring destruction, we can bring a discernment and a refinement to destruction as opposed to this sort of like wholesale clear-cutting that's taking place with us um, clueless. So, I mean, I focused on, I focused on sex because it's, it's one of the, it's one of the, the few places that, that we still can return to our cosmological being. I mean, we, it's, it's, it's access to our, to our cosmological energies. We, we, you know, we tend to live in, in what philosophers call second order reality. And so like the United States of America and, um, and Buddhism and um, Intel Corporation and, and all, of the, all of the constructs that are important and brilliant and wonderful that have been created by humans, they dominate our consciousness. But to, but to return deep, deep to the core of who we are and... Um, uh, you know, Bell Hooks has this great line that you, you can't love if you're confused about the core of your being. What is the core of your being? And so what I'm trying to suggest is that from the beginning, the core of our being is longing and is passion. And, and, to, and to return and to dwell there. And, and then what, what does it lead to? What does longing lead to? It leads to encounter. It leads to a profound engagement which is destructive and creative. But in that encounter, whatever it might be, it might be with a person, it might be with a movement, it might be with a land, it might be with a particular plant, but in the encounter, the universe is giving birth to itself. And so it is that we... we we participate in an erotic creativity through and through and that, and that we, we really truly are part of it, but we don't initiate it. it. It was initiated long before we arrived. This idea that we want to go to other planets, it's what we want is intimacy. We want to be there. We want to be part of it. We want to be part of their journey. And so... I hear this. I, when I was back, it was, I lived in New York, and um, this woman 
was looking at a lawyer, friend, looking at a wall. I had a picture of, of galaxies on the wall. And I, you know, she looked at him and said, what's that? And I said, well, that's the, the nearest million galaxies. <laughs> I was so proud of it, you know. I said, what? And she backed out and left the house. <laughs> and I was so upset, you know, again, trying to be kind. So I went down the stairs and went across the, I said, what, what, I, wait, what did I say, what did I say? She goes, I just, I can't take that. It just makes me feel so insignificant. And, the, and, and so I thought, okay. I went back and thought about it. And so then, like, you know, three years later, I came up with the idea that what, what, what I wish I had said to her, and it's this. It's, it's a bizarre fact, but it's, it's, it's real that the universe is, is this, with all of its trillions of galaxies, it's the smallest place we can fit into. It's the smallest place we can fit into. Now that, that seems bizarre. In modern consciousness, that seems bizarre because the universe is a big place and you fit lots of stuff in there, you know. No, 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 not in the, not in the consciousness that's emerging. In the consciousness that's emerging, the universe is a story. It's an ongoing event. So it's not a big empty place. It's a happening. It's a story. And so the, one of the things we've learned is this. If the expansion had been slower at the beginning of time by just a trillionth of 1%, the universe would have expanded out and would have collapsed back into a black hole. So the expansion had to be just as fast as it was in order for there to be galaxies. Okay, that's fact number one. Here's fact number two. In order to have a complex body that with the ability to maybe understand the dynamics of the universe, you need to build up organic chemistry and so forth. That takes billions of years. Right? So, in other words, we, in this universe, it has to expand that fast. And billions of years have got to go by before you get to a, a being that can actually reflect on the universe as a whole. In other words, for the, the moment any creature would wake up to understand the universe, it would have to be something like this size. Did I do that too quickly? Did I do it just right? Was it just right? Okay. It had to be something this size. So that we, the, 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 the phrase used by scientists that we fit into this universe like a hand into a glove. You see, so it's not that we're separated by vast spaces, it's that we're intimate with them because they are what they are in order that we could be what we are. That's not a statement that could have been made any time during the modern period. Because it would be that life is a happenstance, it's negligible, it's an accident, we're here, strange, it's alien, we don't fit in. No, no. The universe is just what it had to be in order for there to be a being that could reflect upon the dynamics as a whole. So we want to, I think humans have a longing for a meaningful role, right? We want to participate. We want to be part of the action, Right? But I, I think even there, all of those words are kind of philosophical, but, but I, I think ultimately what we want is we want to feel like we're alive. That's what we want. We want to be alive, 
and we want to be filled with, with vitality. Just that's what we want, moment by moment. We don't want to feel like we're dead. We don't want to feel like we're part of something that's destroying or that is bringing death. We want to be alive, alive, alive. And what I, what I was trying to suggest is that, that the way in which the universe comes alive are through these encounters of different kinds from the very beginning. The never, you never, universe doesn't get to place and then just has got something. Okay, hey. That's done, all right? You just stay right there. Don't move, don't move. move. You look great. Put you on a pedestal. No, everything is thrown into the fire. So I think that something like that, and and one of the deepest uh, feelings of being alive is the sense of fulfillment, meaning that you realize, you feel that you're participating in an event that is... Cosmic, that's why I read the poem. I mean, he, he, he realized, even though he wasn't having sex in the moment, he was thinking back in the past, but he realized he had participated in something so deep. It was at, it's at the core of all spirituality and all worship. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it so much. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.